This is the end Beautiful friend This is the end My only friend The end Of our elaborate plans The end Of everything that stands The end No safety or surprise The end I'll never look into your eyes Again Hi, I'm Gary Parker and welcome to the Not Fade Away podcast. The podcast will chronicle the memories of the baby boomer generation from 1957 when Buddy Holly wrote Not Fade Away until 1977 when cable television and personal computers began to enter our lives. Say hello to my co-host Craig Jones who will tell us about our first episode, The Killer Awoke Before Dawn. Thanks, Gary. On August 5th, 1967, 15-year-old James Walcott killed his entire family by going from room to room with a gun and shooting them. A few months earlier, The Doors released their first album on January 4th, 1967. On the second side is the over 10-minute controversial song, The End. During the middle part of the song, Jim Morrison narrates a family member going from room to room and killing his family. Our discussion will be about what possible influence that shocking part of the song had on James Walcott. The murders took place in Georgetown, Texas, a suburb of Austin. James Walcott's father was a professor at Southwestern University with the family living nearby. I would like to welcome our two guests, Chris Cahill and Dwayne Varnador, who are sophomores at Southwestern. Hey, um, I'm Dwayne Varnador. I was a uh, sophomore uh, at the time of the Walcott murders. Um, I was in Houston, Texas, working in a steel plant, it was a summer job, uh, over the summer of, of 1967, uh, I was working with uh, one of our fraternity brothers, uh, uh, Archie Milo. And um, as I recall, this is, of course, before the days of instantaneous news and cell phones and all that. Archie, who was a, a science major, got a call from someone who was, I think, also a science major that this murder had taken place. And, of course, Archie t called me immediately or maybe told me at work. And, of course, we were flabbergasted by what had happened. But um, uh, I guess we found out fairly quickly because we were students at Southwestern. Both Archie and I had had uh, Dr. Walcott as a professor our freshman year. And uh, others at school, it was a small school or is a small school, word got around fairly quickly. But... In terms of the word getting out from that community to elsewhere, like Houston, it took a day or two, I think, for, for phone calls to be made and people to realize what had transpired. When you got back to school, what was in it, you know, the kind of the conversation? Was it a big buzz, a little buzz, just 
when he got back to, I know we got back for Rush, just uh, kind of how much was a part of any conversation, if at all? Well, it was, it was a big part of the conversation because um, this kind of event had really never happened in a small community like Georgetown. And, and, and it was a small college campus, and it was a small town. I think the crime rate probably at that time in Georgetown was next to nothing. And this was a huge event. It was also a big event in terms of the the person who committed the murders, uh, his age, you know, obviously a member of the family. And uh, it was all really kind of at the same time shocking and, and ghoulish and, 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 of course, kids our age at the time, interesting, you know, everybody was talking about what, what was this motivation? What caused this young man to do that? And that was sort of the, the big talk at the time was what, what was the motive, what, what happened here? What, what really transpired here to cause all of that to happen? Okay, I too, I too was in Houston uh, where my parents lived with them that summer. And it was, this occurred about oh, a good three, almost a month before school actually started at Southwestern University. And uh, the girl I was dating then, who's now my wife of over 50 years, uh, her father was a district judge there in Georgetown. And so she certainly knew about it immediately, uh, or as soon as anybody, I guess, and called me. And, and that's how I found out about it. You know, I think going back to the uh, basis of this podcast and how times have changed, I think a lot of that has to do with Georgetown itself. You know, back in the mid-60s, Georgetown was not what it is today. Today, it's basically a suburb of Austin. Back then, it was a little sleepy college town with a newspaper, the Williamson County Sun, that came out either once or twice a week. Uh, there was no local television stations, and I think a good comparison uh, could be made uh, with the shooting in Austin, which was just uh, 30 miles away, almost exactly a year before on the Texas campus, the, 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 uh, uh, the tower shooter. And oddly enough, one of the first victims of the tower shooter was the son of one of the major news anchors there in Austin. So that went nationwide almost immediately and got national coverage. This event in Georgetown got almost no coverage. And like I said, like Dwayne said, if you didn't get a call from somebody, it was all word of mouth. It was very slow to get out there. And uh, honestly, by, by the time we got back to school and with Rush, fraternity and sorority Rush going, uh, it was, I mean, this is hard to say, but it was almost a non-event. I mean, everybody recognized it and said, oh, what a shame, but that was about it, very honestly. There was no marches or outcries or balloon releases or anything like that. Um, regarding the trial itself, my father-in-law uh, got Margaret and I into the trial one day uh, just to observe, but he... Uh, he always, I think, 
derided the uh, prosecuting attorney for not stressing one thing, and it was always Judge Vance's uh, thoughts. I think after the trial, he shared this with us. He wouldn't. He was very straight laced and never talked about any of the cases while they were going on and very little after they were over except this one kind of hit home with us and he always said that if the wildcard kid didn't know right from wrong why did he go out into the street after he committed the murders flag down a car load of kids and tell them that the house had been broken into and uh, his family was shot i mean he you know, he, and this was never stressed by the prosecuting attorney. Another thing that Judge Vance said and that Margaret and I also saw when we went down to observe that day is Walcott kid showed absolutely no emotion and no remorse at any time during the trial or after. So I mean, it's kind of a, kind of a weird deal, but that, that's kind of my take on it. Next, we examine the possibility of a connection between the song and the event. Not Fade Away is sponsored by Apollo Art Speakers. Apollo Art Speakers are speakers that play when connected to a receiver. These speakers are individually handcrafted and produce stunning, clear, and detailed music and television sound by vibrations coming from the beautiful photographic aluminum art. And we can use your own digital image or one from our professional photographer. You can watch a video or see pictures on Facebook Apollo Art Speakers. Purchases can be made at Etsy.com, which feature custom and craft products. There have been other examples of music influencing crimes, including the horrific murders ordered by Charles Manson in 1969. Manson referenced the Beatles' Helter Skelter as a song he believed that called for him to join blacks to rise up against white rich people with a violent insurrection. The Beatles were often amused by the interpretation of some of their lyrics, which actually led to some proclaiming Paul McCartney was dead. Of Helter Skelter, McCartney said it was actually about a carnival ride that was a tipsy-turvy thrill. In the case of the end, the lyrics come very close to describing the crime James Wolcott committed word for word. Here's a description of the events from the Chicago Sun-Times. James, by his own account, sniffs some airplane glue to give him a boost, in quotations, loaded a 22 long barrel rifle, walked to the living room, and shot his father twice in the chest. He then walked to Libby's bedroom and shot her once in the chest, and when she fell, he shot her in the face. Awakened by the blast from the rifle, his mother Elizabeth called out from her bedroom. James then shot her twice in the head and once in the chest. He later admitted that he had decided to kill them a week prior and had made a plan the night before. Now let's listen to the lyrics that describe the similar thing we're comparing in the door song, The End. The killer awoke before dawn. He put his boots on. He took a face 
from the ancient gallery and he walked on down the hall. He went into the room where his sister lived and then he paid a visit to his brother and then he he walked on down the hall And he came to a door And he looked inside Father, yes son, I want to kill you difference in the two narratives is that in the actual murder there was no brother to kill. James Walcott was the brother. I think besides the uncanny similarity in the two lyrics, we need to look, know a little more about James Walcott himself. I think it's a hundred percent that he would have known the band, very likely had heard the song, probably he owned the album, Possibly, he might even listen that night. James was into a 60s lifestyle. Grateful Dead sticker. He was into beat poetry. Jim Morrison brought the poetry into the doors. Back then, there were just limited ways to hear music. There was top 40 music and buying the albums. It wasn't like it is today when you might not even know what the number one song was or who the biggest bands were. Back then, everybody knew. The night of the murder, he went to Austin to see a rock concert with his sister Libby. Upon return, went to his room, sniffed glue. Any, any guy that's 15 years old is likely going to play music when he does that. With that in mind, let's open it up to a group discussion, and we can all give our thoughts on the likelihood or lack thereof that the two were, were related. My theory is that certainly with the world he lived in, that song, had, because remember it came out several months before the incident, had to have been in his mind and been part of the thought process that led him to do what he did. What do you think, Delaney? Well. Uh, I recall that the, the song was very popular, um, and, and one of the things I think about the song that made it popular is sort of its dark, brooding content in the in the melody of it. It kind of rolled along with almost like Valera in that sense. That the, the melody kind of drew you in, but if you started listening to the words, you, it's something's going on here. There's something I don't know, psychotic or something strange, uh, weird, uh, foreboding about about it. Um, and I think there's real possibility that young Walcott had heard the song and he, he may have been 
of that type of person that really gets interested in, if he's really interested in music, he'll, he'll get a hold of the lyrics and maybe read the lyrics because it was, as you pointed out, Craig, it was a, or is a form of poetry. And if he was into beat poetry, he may have liked that. So I know this is a lot of, you know, speculation and postulation, but, but still there is, I believe, a, a possibility uh, I won't say it rises to the level of probability, but there's a possibility that he had listened to this song the night uh, before the murders were committed. Um, who knows? Who knows, really? But uh, it, it's all really quite quite strange. I mean, the whole the song, the series of events that transpired, uh, all sort of apocalyptic in a sense. What do you think, Chris? You know, I think uh, Dwayne hit it on the nose. I think it's really hard to tell how much influence the any one song or groups of songs had. You know, I think, like with a lot of things, like a lot of these uh, murderers that are still out there today, you wonder what their motivation was. And, and you know, to me, a lot of it gets back to you know, the home environment, what was going on in that home, what, what, uh, you know, stimulated this sort of behavior, what, you know, what was his relation with his family, and that's something, you know, we'll never know, and, and but who, who knows, uh, I think a lot of these things get back to environment, but also, I think there's a genetic predisposition also, I think there's some people that are just not wired right, Gary, what are your thoughts? Well, um, I, I definitely think that music of that day had a huge inf influence on all of us, you know, good, bad, and indifferent. Um, you know, I, I didn't go to Southwest, so I didn't hear about this story back then. You know, I was in Houston, and, and I don't even re recall hearing about this. And to be honest, that song, um, I always like the melody of it and just the darkness of it like uh, uh, they were talking about and i think that's why francis ford coppola used it in apocalypse now was because not so much lyrically but just the the mood of the song uh just alone and then you add those lyrics to it and i think it's certainly a possibility that kid heard that and said you know this is this is what i'm this is what i've been going to choose to do today. Uh, I think it definitely had some, you know. I think it's just it's just a done deal that he knew the song. Yeah. Now, then it becomes totally uh, guessing, game on, guessing game on how much it mattered. So I think it's just an intriguing, amazing, somewhere between a coincidence and possibly something that he heard, and that started to form these thoughts in his mind. Yeah, we'll never know, but that's what makes you know doing our first podcast fun. I really appreciate uh, the discussion and uh, the way things ended up. Uh, the trial ended in a not guilty verdict due to insanity, like Chris mentioned. James Wolcott was released from a state mental facility six years later, deemed to be sane. He changed his name to James St. James and became a college professor in Decatur, Illinois. 
No one there knew he was, who he was, and what happened until the Chicago Sun-Times did an investigative article in 2013. The complete article can be found on the internet. Thanks to Chris K. Hill and Duane Varnador for joining us. Our next episode is Under the November Sky, when baby boomers from Dallas remember when JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, was assassinated in our city of Dallas. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page and upcoming news and episodes and a video on the way about our cool Apollo art speakers. Our memories will not fade away. All right. This is the Thanks for listening to an episode from our first season of Not Fade Away Archives. Our fall season drops September 20th, don't forget. The high-tech world allows us to archive memories from a period of time in a manageable way we could never have imagined. We would like to invite you to join us. We encourage comments and ideas you might have. We have a list of future possible episodes on our website and our Facebook page. If you feel like you could contribute information about an upcoming episode or even be a guest, we would like to ask you to email us at notfadeawayarchives at gmail.com. Our suggestions for episodes are a small fraction of the possibilities. We plan episodes on memories of events like the JFK assassination and the moon landing, which are memories we all share. But we want to learn about events and people that many of us might not know about that would make episodes we would all like to know about. We hope our published and suggested episodes stimulate many more program ideas. Much of the inspiration for Not Fade Away came from an annual reunion Craig attends with college friends. Most of the conversations centered around memories from over 50 years ago. We're going to reach out to colleges and things like the 55 and over communities to help us reach alumni and residents. Baby boomers have memories to share that are literally infinite. Our funding mechanism for Not Fade Away Archives is Apollo Art Speakers. Apollo Art Speakers produce excellent sound by vibrating aluminum photo art. Like Not Fade Away, these speakers are about memories. Let's let an Apollo art speaker owner tell us about his. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a retired Texas public school administrator. And since I've retired, uh, I've been building a, a man cave out at our, our place in the country. And I'm here today to show a few friends uh, what it looks like. Here's my great TV, big screen TV, listening to some great music and displaying some great artwork. There's an interesting story about this piece of artwork up here, this beautiful piece of artwork. In, in 2017, my mother-in-law passed away and my, my wife was sitting on the side porch of our, uh, of our house here and she noticed the beautiful sunset uh, to the west across our pond. She actually took this picture using her iPhone and uh, the, the picture turned out great and we turned it into a piece of art. Great music coming through a great speaker system 
And the great thing about it is that artwork that I just talked to you about, that is actually the sound audio system uh, produced by Apollo Art Speakers. The distinction about the Apollo Art Speaker is the clarity and detail in the music we're listening to and the television. The things I told you about is what makes Apollo Art Speakers a great product. But the special thing about it is we were able to use a photo that is very special to my family to build the speaker. A financial planner has a photo he took on a trip to Iceland hanging in his office. He bought the largest speaker that is sold. The photo and the sound that comes from it are stunning. Everywhere an Apollo art speaker hangs, people can't tell where the sound is coming from. They just know it sounds great as it fills the room. We also have terrific photos from a professional photographer, Dave Clements. Apollo art speakers hanging in homes and offices include an incredible picture of eagles in flight and licensed photos of Sir Paul McCartney and another one of Tom Petty. These two photographs are among hundreds Dave's published in coffee table books featuring musicians. The books are a fundraiser to combat Rett syndrome, which is a horrific disease that affects young girls. Apollo art speakers hang on the wall and are easy to install. Apollo Art Speakers includes a copy of one of Dave's books with every Apollo speaker sold. For more information on Apollo Art Speakers, visit our store on Etsy.com. We encourage you to get a free subscription to Not Fade Away Archives wherever you listen to your podcast. The music you will hear now is on a vinyl record playing through an Apollo Art Speaker unfiltered through a single mic. Our memories will not fade away. I'm gonna tell you how it's gonna be. Are you gonna give your love to me? A love to last more than one day. A love is love and not fade away. A love is love and not fade away.